Um, you know, I mean, it's a lot of people love to hate the federal government, but you know, the you know, Park Service, the Fish and Wildlife Service, the Forest Service, they generally do a really good job. And there's not a lot of fat in those budgets. And you know, I think that you know, we need to invest in those because that's the heart of the $778 billion outdoor recreation economy in this country. Mm-hmm. And if we're not investing in that and proper management and good management and maintained facilities, then you know, we're not taking full advantage of that, you know, that economic giant that outdoor recreation is. Right. Welcome to the Environmental Transformation Podcast, where we talk with industry leaders who are making an impact in their businesses. Each leader is solving complex challenges and providing solutions within their respective areas of expertise. Our host is Sean Grady. He is passionate about helping clients transform their businesses and solving their environmental challenges. And here's our host, Sean Grady. Today's episode is sponsored by Cascade Environmental, the only field services contractor with the personnel and equipment needed to work with you from project conception to completion. They have 37 offices across the country and offer a huge range of environmental or geotechnical drilling, site characterization, and remediation services. Thanks to their technical experts, huge fleet of equipment, and nationwide coverage, Cascade is a great choice to support your environmental or infrastructure projects. To learn more, check them out at www.cascade-env.com. That's www.cascade-env.com. Good afternoon. Today's uh, podcast here on the Environmental Transformation Podcast, we're uh, introducing Whit Fosberg. Whit's the CEO of the Teddy Roosevelt Conservation Partnership. Uh, Whit, welcome to the show. It's great to be here. Thank you for having me. Oh, I'm so excited to have this uh, interview today. So I want to give a little, the listeners uh, a little background on you while we're here. So prior to coming to the TCRP, that's the Teddy Roosevelt Conservation Partnership back in 2010, Witt spent 15 years as the Trout Unlimited or with Trout Unlimited playing a crucial role in the organization's evolution into the conservation powerhouse it is. And additionally, he served as fisheries director for the uh, National Fish and Wildlife Foundation and was the chief environment and energy staff member for Senator Tom Daschle and was also uh, a a wildlife specialist for the National Audubon Society. And in 2015, he was honored as the conservation partner of the year by the Bass Pro Shops. Wit. You have a nice, uh, you know, career background here so far. I'm sure there's a little more there to to talk about, but uh, you know, congrats. That's great. Well, listen, I managed to figure out a way to get paid to do things I love. So, <laughs> you know, I, I I know that feeling. The best job I I have to admit I ever had. I used to work for the state of Indiana in the environmental agency, and we sampled the waters of the state. That was my first job out of college. And so all I did was, is I went through all the watersheds in Indiana and we took water quality samples and we were, you know, evaluating non-point source runoff and point source uh, inputs from the, you know, the MPDS dischargers, sewage treatment plants and things like that. And, oh, it was just a f- awesome job. And we got to do a little fishing, you know, 
on the side. Yeah. So you couldn't beat it. Get a good pair of waders on and we'd have a great time as best job I ever had. But then I had a family. I had to get a, you know, a little more pay. <laughs> so I, hear you. I had to move on. Anyways, Wed, thank you for joining. And, um, you know, the Teddy Roosevelt Conservation Partnership, what a classic, awesome name for this partnership. Give me a little background and let the listeners know, you know, what what's the mission of the TRCP and how did you get your name? So the organization was created in 2002 by a guy named Jim Range. And Jim at that time was Howard Baker's chief counsel. Mm-hmm. And Baker was majority leader of the Senate, uh, Republican from Tennessee, you know, during the Reagan years. Mm-hmm. And, you know, both uh, Jim Range and Howard Baker were from Johnson City, Tennessee, good old boys, love to hunt and fish, sort of mm-hmm. old school Republican conservationists. Jim had been involved as a Senate staffer in writing a lot of the seminal environmental laws of the country today, from Endangered Species Act to the Clean Water Act. And, uh, you know, after the 90s, really during the 90s, he became more and more concerned that he saw the that sensible center that the sportsman's community had always represented sort of being vacated. Uh-huh. You had the uh, environmental community moving further left and becoming more aligned with the Democratic Party. You had the gun community moving further right, becoming more aligned with the Republican Party. Mm-hmm. And he felt that there was a you know big gap in the middle that mm-hmm. our community had always occupied going back to Teddy Roosevelt's time. Sure. And really the sportsman that, you know, Roosevelt, first and foremost among them, that created in 1887 the Boone and Crockett Club that was the first of what we consider the modern conservation groups mm-hmm. that set out to not only stop the market hunting at that time and bring wildlife back, but also conserve habitat. Right. You know, when Roosevelt was president, sets aside 230 million acres for all Americans to enjoy. National not just parks. for fishing wildlife, but you know, also because you know, he thought being out in nature and challenging himself made him the man that he'd become. Right. And he wanted all Americans to have the opportunity to do that. And oh, so wow. then early environmental laws and then back starting in the 1930s, the sportsmen's community, and I say sportsmen, I mean sportsmen and women, but at that time it was almost all sportsmen, uh-huh. uh, decided to tax themselves you know, during the Depression by adding an excise tax that would you know, essentially go to the federal government and then go back out to states to, for fish and wildlife conservation. They okay. passed the Duck Stamp Act back at that same time for all waterfowl hunters to pay extra into a fund that would protect habitat. And, you know, that sort of continued until really the 19, probably 50s and 60s is where you started to see the proliferation proliferation of species groups. You know, Ducks Unlimited was created in the 1930s, and then Trout okay. Unlimited in the 50s, Elk Foundations, Pheasants Forever, Mule Deer Foundation. I mean, you name it. If there is a right. critter out there, people like to hunt and fish. There is a group or two. <laughs> Those otters, they're out there. <laughs> well, yeah, I've never seen Unlimited. You know, that's not a big, you know game animal. Yeah. But uh, you know, basically, in those groups, did amazing work. Think about you know the fact that white-tailed deer were rare in this country in the early 1900s, and they're everywhere today. Oh, Turkeys, right. you know, were on the verge of going extinct at one point, and Thanks to the work of the Wild Turkey Federation, we have turkeys, you know, throughout their native range and beyond. Right. Uh, ducks were, there were a lot of folks who thought ducks were going to go extinct back in the 1930s as you had the Dust Bowl and elimination of habitat and water pollution. And Ducks Unlimited really reversed that trend. And we have, you know, great waterfowl populations today. Now, the downside of all that was that the taking the collective eye off of the federal policy that really underlay everything. Mm-hmm. So these groups would do fantastic work you know, restoring a wetland or fixing up a headwater stream like a Trout Unlimited or, 
you know, talking to farmers and getting some land put into conservation. But, you know, collectively, we cease being a voice or an active voice in Washington, D.C. So sure. Jim Range decided to create an organization that brought all those groups that really cared about conservation together to speak on a common voice on issues that were too big for any one group. Right. Big things like agriculture policy, energy policy, public lands policy, conservation funding. Water quality. Uh, and then going back to the name. Quality, yeah. Uh, when the organization was created, we actually, you know, back in 2002, uh, Jim went to Ted Roosevelt IV and explained what he wanted to do. And Ted, to his credit, embraced it, thought this is something that the family would love. And mm -hmm. so the organization was birthed at that time. Ah, oh, that's amazing. That is just so amazing. You know, and I've, I've been to, you know, like the Teddy Roosevelt National Park out there and uh, in, in South Dakota, I believe, uh, in North Dakota. North, North Dakota, North Dakota, and just gorgeous out there. Um, you know, the whole park systems that he was involved with helping uh, establish that, uh, just, I love his passion and for you guys to be able to use his, you know, initial ideas, uh, for conservation into this, uh, you know, bipartisan group that's advocating for environmental conservation. It's awesome. I love it. Um, well, why is it so important for advocacy groups like the TRCP and others to get involved in the, this nonpartisan way to promote the protection of, you know, the national and state public lands for hunting and fishing enthusiasts? How, why, why is this so important? Well, you just think that, you know, listen, hunting and fishing is not a partisan issue. I mean, you know, Democrats hunt and fish, Republicans hunt and fish. It's never been a partisan issue. Environmental mm -hmm. conservation, the same way. I mean, Richard Nixon, when he created the EPA back in the late 60s, early 70s, mm -hmm. didn't do it because he was a conservation nut. He realized it was something that could bring the country together mm -hmm. at a time of race riots, the Vietnam War, burgeoning Watergate scandal. And uh, it was something that all Americans basically could agree on at that time. And I think that remains true today. And what we don't want to do is have these issues taken over by any one you know, political party or you know, interest group. Because yeah, you may score some short-term wins that way, but mm -hmm. you know we've seen you know that you know administrations can change every four years and policies can dramatically you know swing back the other way. Right. And what we want to do is advocate that sensible center that is you know strong and true, regardless of whether you have a Republican or Democratic administration in place. Oh, that's great. Well, that makes a lot of sense because, like you said. Uh, the winds of change are, are occurring quite often and, and the pulse of the public and interest there is changing. Um, well, how does the TRCP encourage Congress to allocate funding to support land and water conservation initiatives? I mean, what's involved with that? I mean, got to imagine. Yeah, so uh, well, I mean, that's a really a two part question. I mean, first part, I'm going to go to the second half of that, which is the funding, which is <laughs> yeah. sort of that black box in Washington. <laughs> really, nobody understands the budgeting and appropriations <laughs> process. And God right. knows, you know, our you know, members, our, you know, the 40 million plus folks out there that like to hunt and fish, mm -hmm. the last thing they really want to do is to engage in the sausage macing in Washington on a particular appropriations bill. Sure. But if you're going to be successful, you've got to do that because, right. you know, that is the backbone of everything from the farm bill and private land conservation to environmental enforcement through the EPA, as you know, from your time in Indiana, mm -hmm. to how our public lands are run. And mm -hmm. if you don't have funding to do that, you go back to the David Stockman days during the 80s and the attempts to basically you know, make government smaller and smaller by starving it to the point where, quote, you could drown it in the bathtub. 
Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, that may make a good sound bite, but it's really lousy policy, particularly for the 640 million acres of public lands and for clean water and clean air and all those other things. Mm-hmm. So the way we do it is we have 61 different organizations under our broad umbrella, uh, ranging from the usual suspects, the Ducks Unlimited, the Trout Unlimited, um, but also, you know, trade associations, American Sport Fishing Association, National Marine Manufacturers, AFL-CIO is a partner because... of their 12 million members hunt and fish. You have a land trust community because wildlife and hunting and fishing need land. Uh So it's a very much the broad tent. And our role is, you know, several fold. I mean, a bunch of those groups, in fact, the majority of the groups that are our partners don't have a DC presence. So we effectively act as that. So we will develop policy positions. We'll circulate them among the broader group. We'll try Uh to engage, tell folks to engage. We'll let them know. If you're in Utah, who you want to contact your congressional delegation to weigh in on this particular issue and how to do it. And we'll we'll do a lot of the follow up and we'll do a lot of the actual physical lobbying in person. But we'll also organize fly ins for folks to come in. We'll do communications campaigns that are national in scope or very local, depending on what we're trying to influence. Uh So it's a traditional inside the beltway advocacy, but it's done not just by us but by 61 very authentic groups out there, plus a cadre of businesses that have joined us and uh, individual sportsmen, local rod and gun clubs. Uh, It's just the average Joe. A lot of it is just weighing in because these are bread and butter issues. Wow. So, you know, it sounds like there's a lot of tracking of events in Congress of what's going on and and what bills getting passed and a a lot of patience that's probably has to be, you know, played here to really keep track of this and understand the long game, so to speak, uh, when things are going to happen and be able to communicate that out to the, to the interested parties. Yeah, absolutely. So there's a lot of that and sort of explaining how it works and keeping folks engaged. We also have to make sure we're not practicing scorched earth because you've got to come back again. You may lose every now and then, but you don't want to you know, forego the option of coming back and working with those same folks who may have voted against you on something that will vote with you on the next one. So you keep it professional, you keep it science-based, you stick Mm -hmm. to the facts, you don't do personal attacks, right? which is a little bit unusual in this day and age. (laughs) But uh, I think that, you know, it's the place where our community wants to be because honestly, it doesn't want to be the bomb throwers in the corner. It wants to be that, you know, sensible voice. Yeah, right. You you want to help, you know, improve uh, the environment. You want to pr- uh, provide uh, the hunters and uh, the sports fishermen and women, you know, the ability to you know enjoy the, the great outdoors. And, um, you know, you don't want that to be impeded and you need uh, support from from these the Congress and these groups. So that's great. Um, so, you know, I was I was reading there has been some recent significant, should I say, uh, uh laws or acts that's been recently approved in Congress. I think that, you know, a lot of it's been the, the hard legwork of what your organization's been doing, but maybe you could talk about the the new Great American Outdoors Act and, and President Trump signed that into law back in uh, August of this year. Yeah, I mean, this sort of goes to the point when, you know, Washington truly is broken in a lot of ways. And these are the one issues, that one set of issues that Republicans, Democrats can seem to agree on. As we bipartisan efforts. <laughs> Yeah. And, uh, you know, you mentioned the Great American Outdoors Act, which is something a lot of us have been trying to get done for decades. Uh-huh. So it does two things. I mean, one, it permanently funds and fully funds the Land and Water Conservation Fund. 
And second, it creates a almost a $10 billion trust fund to tackle the maintenance backlog on our public lands. So I'll talk with you about each of those separately. Yeah, let's do that. The Water Conservation Fund was created in 1965 by Congress as a compromise. At that time, you know, oil and gas companies were interested in drilling on the outer continental shelf. Mm-hmm. And uh, a lot of folks didn't want them to. So the compromise was, that, OK, we're going to open up the Outer Continental Shelf to oil and gas development. But the oil and gas industry is going to pay nine hundred million dollars every year into a fund for land and water conservation. Wow. And basically that's broken up into about half of that goes to local parks. So if you have a local playground, soccer fields, baseball diamonds, basketball courts, that's probably been paid for in part by a land and water conservation fund grant. And the other half goes to protect important areas that maybe a timber company is selling its holdings is getting out of the business and the land and water conservation fund we purchase those to add to a national forest or a state forest or whatever it may be mm-hmm. uh, it may do negotiations with a private landowner for a permanent conservation easement mm-hmm. so that we have working lands in perpetuity but we know that's not going to be developed with condos so mm-hmm. The problem with land and water conservation funds, since it was created only one time in those 55 years, was it fully funded by Congress. Oh, Rest okay. of the time, Congress rated it for other things unrelated. Mm, I see. So finally, you know, we were able to get it off budget. And so the $900 million that goes in every year from the industry now is going to go out for its intended purpose, which is you know parks and recreation and protecting wild places. So well, that's going to be that's going to be some interesting improvements over the next five to ten years. I got to imagine. Yeah, I mean the average Congress funding recently has been about that four hundred million dollar range. So mm-hmm. we're more than doubling it, and mm-hmm. uh, God knows we're not making more open space. It seems right. to be doubled up all the time. So we need that money, and we need it soon. And uh, you know, we also I think the pandemic has showed you know, we want to support people getting outside. Right. And that may be a you know a local basketball court or a baseball diamond, or it may be you know a new you know park or state park, federal park, maybe new access areas, trails so, improvements, all kinds yeah, of stuff. Yeah, right? you can be all over the place. Mm-hmm. So anyway, that's you know that was one part of the Great American Outdoors Act. The second part was this trust fund to deal with the maintenance backlog on our public lands. It is estimated that we have about a twenty billion with a B dollar maintenance backlog on our national parks, refuges, oh. national forests, and BLM lands. And mm. that may manifest itself in a dilapidated visitor center or a campground that's closed because this is such disrepair or mm-hmm. trails that are all rutted out or a road that is now impassable on a national forest because it has not been maintained. Mm. So it could be a boat ramp someplace that is in disrepair. So this can be used to address all those maintenance backlogs we spent down over five years. Uh, and not only is it you know good for our parks and forests and refuges, but it's also a way to get people outside and get them back to work. Mm-hmm. And these yeah. are jobs are doing all this. They're not going to get exported overseas. They're going to be you know, American jobs with Americans doing the work at a time when a lot of folks need to get outside again and get to work. That's kind of like the old civilian core uh, type concept here, right? And then didn't Teddy Roosevelt institute that, I believe? It was actually uh, Franklin Roosevelt. Oh, yeah, Franklin Roosevelt. I'm sorry. You're right. It was part of the family, though. But Yeah. So, no, it's the same sort of concept. I mean, it's not right. called that. But, you know, the idea is, you know, these are, these are all activities that are going to spur economic development, both Land and Water Conservation Fund as well as the maintenance backlog, you know, here in the United States. Well, that's great. So, I got to imagine there was a lot of like, uh, you know, 
celebration there with that. Oh yeah. So in, in a year that has not had a lot to celebrate, we celebrated heartily on that one. And it was great because everybody took credit. I mean, Democrats have been pushing for this and a bunch of Republicans for years. Trump took credit. We wanted everybody to take credit for this. Everybody so, takes credit. Yeah, we're all we're all benefiting from this. Absolutely. This is something we country. all thought of. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Well, that's I mean, that's gotta be super rewarding and exciting to see that come to uh fruition. And with all the hard work, with all the organizations, like I mean, my goodness, that's pretty amazing. Well, you know, and so that was a pretty monumental you know, thing that happened with this, this new law getting, you know, refunded and everything. But then really just like on the heels of that, just recently, there was another, uh, wildlife conservation type of act. It's called the great American outdoors act. No, no, that's, I'm sorry. It's called the, uh, the, the American conservation enhancement act. So what is that one about? Well, if you think of the great American outdoors act as the grand slam home run, I think the American you know, Conservation Enhancement Act is more like, you know, you know, bunt singles and maybe a double every now and then. It's small, okay. but it's still really important. It was a nice victory. omnibus of you know, several different bills. Okay. It reauthorized the North American Wetland Conservation Act at okay. about 60 million a year. That has been purchasing wetlands and you know, protecting wetlands around the country for years. Mm -hmm. And uh, a really successful program that leverages a bunch of private dollars from groups like Ducks Unlimited and Delta Waterfowl. Mm -hmm. uh, it you know, basically created the Nas Fish National Fish Habitat Partnership Act, which essentially is the you know, North American Wetlands Conservation Act for fish. It okay. funds local partnerships, uh, it uses federal seed funding, and then you know, states and locals will you know, match that money for stream restoration you know, projects that restore fisheries habitat. It's oh, something like that's that. existed administratively for years, but had never been codified by Congress. And basically any president could have eliminated it. Yeah, now no, it has not. been codified by Congress and funded or will be funded. And uh, we hope it becomes as important as NACA has been for ducks. And so um, will that be funded like on an annual basis based on the We law have to go to Congress every year and get them to kick in money for it. Okay. So it's not been taken off budget, but that's fine. I think we can make a very strong case that these projects more than pay for themselves and leverage a lot of other money and volunteer labor at the end of the day. Uh -huh. Other provisions in the ACE Act, as we call it, included reauthorization of the National Fish and Wildlife Foundation, which has been basically you know, giving out grants for on-the-ground restoration projects since 1984 to the tune of over $6 billion now in terms of federal money matched by uh -huh. corporate money and state money. Uh, a great institution, but was created by Congress and needs that congressional authorization again. Uh, it created a task force of the federal agencies to deal with chronic wasting disease, mm. which is essentially the deer equivalent of mad cow disease and is a real mm. threat to hunting in this country. Right. Um, you know, so that was, you know, you know, another important part of it. So it really creates, you know, I think some more federal initiative to get on top of that problem before it spreads any further than it is. It's currently in 26 different states around this country. It is 100% fatal to deer. Mm. It has not jumped the species barrier to humans right now. But if it did, uh, it would be very bad news. But then the other, you can go ahead and ask about that, or I can go to the other two. Key yeah, points. I was going to ask about that because, you know, I just started uh, getting into uh, that, just learning about it, really, and because I started researching the website and, and I have some hunting friends. I mean, I live in rural uh, Indiana, west northwestern Indiana or central Indiana, and there's a ton of hunting around here. Great white deer, white-tailed deer hunting, and 
I, I hadn't heard this before. And, you know, so how did this, how did this disease get started? I mean, what's, what's the impact of, of to the population? Well, nobody really knows exactly how it started. Basically, it's a genetic mutation, a malformed protein in the brain. Mm-hmm. And, it's, you know, it's a prion disease like mad cow disease, like Creutzfeldt-Jakob disease in humans, like scrapie in sheep. Um, what we do know is that where it was spread was largely through the captive deer industry. Oh. And there is a, you know, a captive deer industry out there that, you know, raises some deer for venison, for restaurants, for the table. Uh, but most of it is, you know, and I'm going to use air quotes on this for hunting experiences where people can go in without spending the time to really hunt and right. shoot a large animal they can put on their wall. Mm-hmm. And these captive facilities will ship animals all over the place. And anytime you have a lot of animals in close proximity, it is an incubator for disease. And sure, sure enough, as these animals get swapped around the country, you know, as you spread genetic material, you're also spreading disease. And that has been the primary way we think that it's gone from a single state, Colorado, to 26 states and spreading. Wow. And it's a fundamental threat to deer hunting. And 80% of the hunting industry in this country is deer hunting. And that includes right. elk and mule deer, but mostly whitetails. And if uh, and we're really seeing the growth right now is that sort of the, the new hunter is a person who largely is not doing it because of the size of an animal on the wall. It's doing it for the experience, for getting out there, for the food, you know, right. locally sourced, non-GMO, high protein, lean meat. Right. And uh, you know, if we all of a sudden scare people off that it's not safe to eat venison, then uh, that is a not only a problem for deer hunting, it's a problem for conservation, given how much money hunters pay through excise taxes and licenses and fees and tags right. in conservation. Well, so are the, is there any like medical scientific research going on to how to maybe, you know, come up with a vaccine for this type of uh, disease situation? There's, there's, because it's a prion disease, it's not living. And again, I'm not a doctor, so I don't really explain this very well. So there's not going to be a vaccine for it. Okay. Uh, what we can do is, you know, sort of prevent it spread and just hope it doesn't jump to humans. And there are various techniques that we've learned, you know, the state agency have learned to keep it at background levels. If you find it in an area, you go in and you kill a bunch of deer and gotcha. uh, you can get hunters to help you with that. And if you have low numbers, you know, the disease can, you know, basically just fade out over time because there's just not enough you know, density in the population to keep it spreading. I mean, is it, is it something that's, you can tell by looking at the deer that they've got the disease I over mean, time? Like, yeah. It looks sickly um, or something it, or what? Over time it will appear emaciated. You'll see the ribs hanging out. It will, you know, his head will be slung down. It'll be drooling. Okay. And uh, you know, the problem is that as they sort of get weaker, then typically you know, they're easier to kill, and uh, either by a predator or by a hunter. And often, you know, they're done so before they're showing clinical signs, gotcha. um, like the you know staggering around with the ribs exposed. So, so is there danger, you know, with an unsuspecting hunter if they were to kill a deer that had it? I mean, could they get infected by eating the meat? Potentially. I mean, the CDC recommends not eating deer from meat from infected deer. Again, there's never been a case. We know tons of hunters have eaten infected deer, just given the fact of where the disease is. Uh, It hasn't, you know, hasn't, we don't know that it's popped up in anybody yet, but you know, why do we want to take that risk? I mean, let's get on top of it now. Let's stop spreading deer deer all over the place. Uh If there was an issue in captive facilities, let's deal with it there and not let it get into the wild. 
And uh, if there are things that the hunters can do in the wildlife agencies, like reducing deer densities, let's do it. Right, right. Well, now I was reading on the website the other day, and there was this uh, concern that some of the funding that's going towards, re, you know, supporting this uh, this disease is actually being, it's going to these like confined, uh, you know, deer re, uh, facilities. And and that's the, where the problem is, instead of really helping out the area, other areas. Yeah, it's, so, it's been frustrating. I, mean, I think you've described it pretty well. I mean, for example, we got $5 million last year for to go out to you know states for surveillance and testing on CWD. Yeah. That Department of Agriculture, unbeknownst to us, siphoned off a million and a half, sent it to deer farms for, quote, indemnification. Now, that's not necessarily a bad thing. That means is that if a CWD pops up in a deer farm someplace, the deer farm is going to be required to basically kill everything. Kill and, everything, right, and, yeah. And then they get compensated for that loss, which we're supportive of. Because the last thing we want them to do is not deal with their problem. The, the problem we see is there's already a separate fund of money for that in the Department uh, of Agriculture. And they I shouldn't see. be rating the money that's supposed to go out to the states. Right. That. So, yeah, we're still angry about that. You know, I think the time is coming where we're going to need to have a you know, sort of comprehensive legislation done by Congress that funds aggressively in surveillance and testing, funds the research more aggressively. Mm -hmm. But then also, you know, sort of puts limits on the movement of deer until we can get our house in order in terms of these facilities. Gotcha. Gotcha. Well, you know, that's, 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 these are great topics to be on top of. Somebody's got to pay attention to this. And so I'm glad it's the TRCP and other, you know, uh, you know organizations, you know, looking after this to help raise these, these, uh, these issues. Cause most in most hunters, the average average Joe, so to speak, you know, he may not really be, you know, tuned into this, you know, but maybe he is. But uh, I mean, it, like I said, it was something new I just recently learned. So, this episode is sponsored by Infos. Do you work in remediation management? Are you still settling for using Excel or ad hoc systems to manage your entire portfolio? Well, they get it. It's been that way forever, right? What's a remediation professional supposed to use when general project management tools just don't cut it and spreadsheets cause the same old problems that have been around for decades? Well, meet Infos, an enterprise software platform designed specifically to help remediation professionals transform the way they work. It lets you manage your site information, financial plans, and lab data all in one place, synced, accurate, and secure. With over 20 years in the industry, Infos is trusted by some of the biggest companies on earth. Find out how much time and money you can save by adopting an all-in-one management platform built specifically for remediation project management. To learn more, visit www.infos.com. That's www.enfos.com. We'll talk a little bit about the big issues that the TRCP are supporting and educating uh, with the public to improve fish and wildlife habitat. Well, I mean, we just talked about some of them, those bills that passed in the, the ACE Act, the America's Conservation Enhancement Act, had a couple other key provisions too, one which is reauthorizing the Great Lakes Program and the Chesapeake Bay Program, which have been really successful programs in getting those water bodies in better shape today than they used to be. Mm -hmm. But in terms of general, I'd say there are a few different things. I mean, one, we're always going to have to work on you know, balancing development and conservation. Mm -hmm. And you look at you know, our federal lands today, 
And the Trump administration, you know, has been you know very active, and they put out early on the mantra of energy dominance, meaning that energy development would take precedence over any other use on public lands. Mm-hmm. Now they've toned that down a good bit, particularly since David Bernhardt's been the Secretary of the Interior. Mm-hmm. But still, there's an always a battle as to where you do development and where you don't do development and how you do it. Right. And you know, for example, on the national forest system has 193 million acres. Every acre of there is divided up into some forest plan, and the public has an opportunity to comment on those plans. Same thing with the Bureau of Land Management, which has 240 million acres, again, developed in more than 100 regional resource management plans. And we have to engage in those um, to basically weigh in on the behalf of the sportsmen. We have to make sure that the agencies are well-funded to do their jobs. Um, you know, I mean, it's a lot of people love to hate the federal government, but, you know, the you know, Park Service, the Fish and Wildlife Service, the Forest Service, they generally do a really good job. And there's not a lot of fat in those budgets. And you know, I think that you know, we need to invest in those because that's the heart of the $778 billion outdoor recreation economy in this country. Mm-hmm. And if we're not investing in that and proper management and good management and maintained facilities, then you know, we're not taking full advantage of that, you know, that economic giant that outdoor recreation is. Right. I would say climate is going to be another huge one. I mean, right. we organized uh, about 41 of our various members and released a statement to Congress as urging them to engage in climate. Yes, to reduce emissions, but also to really invest in sequestration and adaptation. I mean, you know, they est- the scientists estimate that somewhere around 20% of the solution is going to be from sequestering carbon in lands and waters. Mm-hmm. And that's where our community is really good at restoring wetlands, better right. managing forests, reforestation, you know, getting more lands into conservation and ag country. Yeah, but really working with private landowners to make sure they're a part of the solution too, incentivize you know farmers for you know improving soil health. Sure. Dealing you know sequestering carbon. I mean, Best manager practices. Yeah, incredibly you know clever and smart and knows you ask them to do something, you give them the resources to do it. They'll be able to do it. Yeah, you're touching on the farmer stuff. You know, way back in I want to say the early 2000s, I was involved with the uh, the CRP program for program, uh, yeah. So uh, we were hired. Um, GHT was hired to go out and help sign up farmers. You know, to put their lands in you know certain you know grasses and things like that, and to to be a part of the uh, CRP program. I thought that was a, a pretty eye-opening uh, experience because it just really showed you that that habitat conservation and best management practices that they were promoting that uh, the farmers were voluntarily doing, taking their their land out of production but make it, you know, having a benefit to, you know, the environment. Uh, I think it was pretty good. Yeah, I mean, it's a, that's a perfect example. And you know, from those early days of CRP, when we had about 37 million acres enrolled in the program, uh-huh. we're down to under 22 million acres today. And in the meantime, uh-huh. we're just giving farmers, you know, bailout checks because of trade wars and things like that. And I would love to see us, you know, actually ask the farmers to do something for the money and to help, you know, solve problems like, you know, fish and wildlife habitat, or clean water, you know, which uh-huh. they can do. So yeah. we're not asking them to right now. And the programs we know work like CRP are really not being implemented the way they should be. Yeah, well, that's more education. That's really what we need to focus there on. So, um, well, 
talk about this proposed the proposed changes in the Forest Service's leasing rule and how that could affect hunting and fishing because that seemed to be uh, yeah so that's new on the horizon. Getting a little bit into the weeds of you know federal policy, but you know the Forest Service administers about 193 million acres around the country, mostly mm-hmm. national forests, but some national grasslands. Mm-hmm. And uh, but in a quirk of you know government you know history, they don't control the subsurface mineral rights on those lands. The Bureau sure. of Land Management does. Right. And, okay. But in the past, before the BLM could go ahead and lease out national forests for oil and gas development, for example, mm-hmm. they would have to get the Forest Service to concur to that, to approve it. Gotcha. And the Forest Service knows their own lands and you know, we're ecologically sensitive, we're the great hunting and fish areas, things like that, far better than BLM does. Right. So that, you know, and that has protected a bunch of areas that have been proposed for leasing, you know, from actually being leased because we're like the Forest Service said, hold on now, let's not do it there. Not only is there a low mineral potential, but this is a critical area for mule yeah, deer. pristine for, area for our yeah, yeah, exactly. wildlife, right? So, but because that was perceived as a impediment to energy development, uh, the administration has proposed eliminating that role of the Forest Service to concur or approve any development on Forest Service land. So it'd just be mm. a BLM decision. I see. Now the comment period is open in that on that until November 2nd. Obviously, we're commenting on it. We're trying to get a bunch of our partners to comment on it because we just don't think it makes any sense. I mean, so we basically, the TRCP's position is we want the Forest Service Street to still have a say in that. Is absolutely. That is yeah, there, absolutely. They know it better than BLM does. They know right. where the areas are. And, uh, you know, we have, listen, there may be certain areas in the forest system that are absolutely appropriate for energy development. Fine. Sure. Right. But others you know, may not be, and we want to have that safeguard in place. Makes um, sense to me. I mean, calling lawsuits, just, you know, to just, you know, try to block something. That's just being smart, you know, conservationists, basically, and environmental protection, and really is what that's all about. That makes a lot of sense. Yeah. Um, okay, so that's kind of on the horizon, and that bill is being op- It's on uh, open for public comment now, and, and yeah, it's not a bill. It's a proposed uh, rule from the administration that is oh, okay. I see comment right now. It is uh, comment period ends on November second, so the day before the election. Mm-hmm. So, uh, you know, we'll be doing comments, you know, we'll be you know, doing press on it. So if folks want to learn more about it, they can go to trcp.org and you know, find out what we say about it. Sure. Absolutely. Uh, I like that. Well, so we've been talking about a lot of these organizations that you uh, kind of represent as a kind of, they're an, um, you know, you're kind of like the umbrella. They all funnel up under you a little bit. I mean, I think they do their own things individually as well, but you're kind of like hurting the cats, so to speak, to have that one voice, right? So, uh, you know, talk a little bit about how that relationship works between your organizations and say, you know, Ducks Unlimited and Isaac Walton League and those types of people. Yeah, I mean, first of all, we, you know, unless they want us to, we don't speak for them. We're simply trying to help organize them. We have our own voice. We have about 110,000 individual members you know, at TRCP ourselves. Right. So, you know, we speak for ourselves and there are times when we just send something in on our letterhead and don't speak for the rest of the community. There are other sure. times that there will be a lot of different groups signed on. Um, but we also, you know, sort of agree as you become a partner of ours, you know, we agree to disagree. There'll be some times mm-hmm. when, you know, Ducks Unlimited and TRCP will have different positions on issues and that's fine. And sure. we'll just you know, park that at the door and not worry about that. We're just going to work together on, you know, what we all agree on. And that's 95% of everything. Sure. And so it's just, you have to be sensitive. It's like any sort of partnership. And last thing we want to do is to tell other people how to do their business. We want right. to make a case why we think it's good business to do this. 
but we definitely want to be respectful for what they do. And honestly, if we're doing our job, then, you know, they're a strong organization at the end of the day, because we've helped, you know, raise the sea for all the ships. I like it. I like it. That's great. So they don't really view you guys as a threat or anything like that. They're, they truly see you as a partner to help, you know, advocate for a common purpose. Yeah, I think that's right. And I think that, uh, I mean, obviously every nonprofit is territorial. It's got to do its own fundraising. It has uh-huh. very jealous of its own members. It's jealous of its reputation. So it's a, it can be you know, a tense discussion sometimes. But, you know, we try to bend over backwards to make sure that we're being really responsive to our members because without them, you know, we're nothing. Right, right, right. Well, so how important is individual and corporate membership to the TRCP? Well, it's important in two regards. I mean, one, if something is happening really fast on the Hill or in administration and we literally have, you know, hours to you know, weigh in on it, then by having our individual membership, the 110,000 you know, folks that have signed up you know, organically as supporters or donors of ours, mm-hmm. we can mobilize those folks you know, in seconds. Mm-hmm. And that's important. We don't have to sort of wait to mobilize our partners and have them go through whatever process they may need to to engage in issues. So it allows us to be much more nimble. Mm-hmm. Second, on the corporate side, we have created a corporate council that is about 25 different companies that range from uh, you know, Coca-Cola and Shell to Bass Pro Shops and Orvis, um, you know, so very much, you know, a big tent. And, you know, we've just, you know, we try to pick companies in different market sectors we feel are leaders mm-hmm. and work with them because we are convinced they care about the environment and care about conservation. They're going to contribute in their own way. They may give us money. You know, they may, you know, push out an issue that is happening and engage their members to weigh in on it. Uh-huh. Uh, they may quietly call a senator or the White House on behalf of you know some of the, our issues. So that uh, the, how they engage is you know varies. We also have you know, other relationships with more than a hundred different companies that may donate product to our banquet. They may you know sort of engage and support us in one way or another. And I think that you know all of that just makes us stronger. Again, you sure. know. Yeah, we're not going to tell them to do anything, but if they want to engage, we're going to give them the information and show them, you know, just what the facts are and how they can make a difference. That's great. Well, I mean, I, you know, some of those corporate sponsors are, are clients of ours that I work with as well, and you know, it's great to see that they're uh, investing in, you know, uh, an organization like the TRCP because I couldn't think of a better way to help raise their corporate profile, you know, to to make a statement of that they're, you know, in support of environmental. Uh, legislation and conservation practices, you know, because some of these guys are major companies that, you know, sometimes to get a bad rap. So it's great to see that. I I really think that's awesome. Yeah. I mean, listen, you look at the uh, last few years, I mean, it's really been, you know, sort of on things like climate, for example, it's really been the private sector that's been leading. I Mm -hmm. mean, you know, Shell is a great example. I mean, they were strongly opposed to the U.S. pulling out of the Paris Agreement. You know, they have incentive compensations for all their senior people based on achieving climate goals. You know, they reckon there's the whole, you know, energy transition is fundamental. Yeah, they are. They are doing it now. So, you know, <laughs> I've been accused of being, being, you know, doing greenwashing by having them as a partner. But, you know, it goes to the territory. I just think that corporate America is going to have to be a part of the solutions. Yeah, they're going to be bad actors that are going to oppose doing anything good. We're just not going to work with them. But right. I'm happy to work with the companies that want to do the right thing. Well, that's, that's right. I mean, and that's great to hear, especially somebody like Shell. I love to hear that. Um, well, so 
Talk about how the TRCP is organized. I mean, do you have representatives in local regions or how are you guys organized to actually, you know, mobilize and connect with your partners because and get the message out? How do you do that? So, you know, the, we have two advisory boards. That's to be our policy council, which is made up of those 61, you know, nonprofits. And we have a corporate council with those 25, you know, sort of core companies that, you know, and those are both advisory bodies to the board and to the staff. Mm-hmm. And then we have uh, about 34 staffers around the country. Uh, about a dozen of them are in D.C. That's where the headquarters are. This is where the lobbying is, where the main communications efforts come from. Fundraising is here. This is where I sit. Mm-hmm. Um, but most of the folks that are out beyond are organizers. So they're the folks that are in Colorado, in Nevada, in Montana, in Oregon, people that are out there mobilizing local rod and gun clubs, local businesses, you know, talking to Oregon representatives and Oregon senators uh-huh. to you know, engage on these federal issues that we care about. So it is a fairly diverse group. We were fortunate as we went into COVID that you know, we had just invested in making sure the entire staff was on laptops and we upgrade our entire IT system. And given the fact that you know, the majority of the staff's already working remotely, it was fairly seamless for us. Uh-huh. But, you know, those folks are all out there and everything that we do is divided into one of five conservation areas. And that's public lands, private lands, water, conservation funding and climate. And then the, the fifth one is marine fisheries. Okay. So, you know, each of those areas has got a senior staff person that runs it and then working groups underneath it. And those working groups are where the various partners where we have real expertise they get together and our staffers tend to facilitate meetings, facilitate position statements, um, press releases, things like that. So sure. there is a lot of herding cats, but it's, it's working. So <laughs> that's, that's great. No, no, that's awesome. Uh, I really like that. Um, okay. So, you know, uh, how does, how does the TRCP address the effects of the COVID-19 pandemic with its members? How are you guys dealing with that? Because I'm sure that's going to be a topic that you guys got to bring up. Talk oh, about. absolutely. Yeah. So, I mean, there, there are a couple of different ways. We uh, we have been helping with about five of our you know partner organizations spearhead a hashtag responsible recreation that was you know early on when folks were getting outside was just promoting it, doing it smart. Because the last uh-huh. thing you want to do is have a state open up and then you know a bunch of knuckleheads jump into a party boat and they all get COVID and then the state uh-huh. closes boating back up again. Uh-huh. And so it's just a message that, you know, get outside, but be smart about it. Maintain your social distancing, you know, right. pick up after you leave. Don't leave a mess in a campground that somebody else is going to have to clean up. Just take the common sense approach to be responsible when we recreate. So that's been part of it. What we've also been doing is, and you'll see some of our ads on social media, really, you know, promoting something we're calling conservation works. And that is investing in conservation as a way to put Americans back to work. Mm-hmm. That may be what we talked about with the you know, maintenance backlog on our public lands. Yeah. But there are a bunch of other things too that we can do that, you know, get people outside, put them back to work that are really important for our environment too. So mm-hmm. really those are I think are the main things, responsible recreation and uh, the you know conservation works for America, the getting you know jobs through environmental restoration and protection. So I'm thinking if I'm a young professional or I'm somebody maybe in college and, you know, active enthusiast that really enjoys the outdoors, grew up with their 
mom and dad doing stuff like that. And they say, Hmm, I'd like to kind of get involved with this. Do you guys do internships? We do. We have a few interns every year, a little bit tough right now. And, but we've actually managed to do a couple of remote internships during COVID. Uh-huh. Um, so what we can do is, you know, we can not only, you know, sort of, we'll take folks in and listen, they can become interns, but they can also just, you know, get engaged with our field staff someplace and be an advocate, uh-huh. you know, take it upon yourself to, you know, your little, you know, fishing club that you may be a member of, get them engaged on an issue that's important in your state. They may have never thought about that, you know, but uh-huh. you know, if you're a, you know, in a college fishing club, you know, start, you know, add conservation to the agenda, invite one of our staffers over to give a talk to your group one night, get engaged. I mean, ultimately it's up to the people to maintain the system that we have today that we're so proud of. Uh-huh. And, uh, you know, that means we just can't be complacent. We have to get up and do something about it. So uh-huh. there's that. What we also can do is we tend to be a gateway for our broader community. So, you know, if your real passion is, you know, you know grassland conservation or CRP and pheasants, uh-huh. Uh-huh. and you don't know where to start, you know, come to us. We can connect you with the local folks at Pheasants Forever uh-huh. or Quail Forever or Turkey Federation or whatever the group may be that you're really passionate about. And, yeah, they may have a lot more opportunities than we do because we're pretty darn small in the big scheme of things. Sure. No, that's great. So somebody could, you know, I guess come and work and maybe work side by side by some of the the folks that are going to lobby some senators about some some uh, new proposed law or you know act right i mean that kind of would be very interesting i would imagine oh i I mean it's fascinating i mean you know this stuff but i mean i mean i still am naive enough to believe in public service and government and Mm -hmm. i just think we're at a little trough right now that we're going to get through this but you know (laughs) i just think it's you know you know this has worked for you know since the 1780s for the you know most part that's a long way but you know it is dependent upon citizen engagement and i think most of the legislators that are out there in congress and state government are truly altruistic they could probably be making more money in the private sector but they do about this they do this because they care yeah Mm -hmm. there are exempt you know exceptions to that and we hear about them when they go to jail but i think in general i think that you know most people are doing this for the right reasons and you know, I think that, you know, it's up to us to engage and help those folks. Well, uh, that would be good. That would be pretty fascinating um, for someone to kind of get a, to get exposure to that and, and maybe basically realize that there's a, you know, career opportunity in that once they graduate. I mean, I think that'd be kind of neat. Hey, listen, um, for me, so. Yeah, I mean, yeah, that's, that's, <laughs> you're a perfect example of that. Hey, you're the CEO of the TRCP. That's awesome. Yeah. Uh, um, so what's next for the TRCP in, in 2021? Well, we're going to be dealing with the new administration, whether it's Trump too or whether it's Biden. You know, there's always a lot of uh, you know change, and uh-huh. so I think we're in the process right now of you know, whatever happens. And we did this in 2016. I mean, we were prepared, and I was surprised as anybody when the election happened. But you know, that said, I mean, you know, we were prepared to work with the Trump administration when they came in, and we started right away working on the transition plans. You know, then we'll do the same thing now. Uh-huh. And uh, we've got documents that we've gone to, you know, Biden will go to Trump or have gone to Trump, you know, just saying what our priorities are, you know, in the next administration. Uh-huh. And we break it out into first hundred days, first year, you know, first, you know, term. So I think that a lot of it is going to be sort of seizing the opportunities that always come in the, you know, the first you know, part of a new administration. Uh-huh. And, you know, given our track record for the last you know couple of years here, you know, I'm pretty bullish that, you know, we're going to be successful regardless of what happens. 
Oh, that's great. I mean, there has been a lot of really good progress these past few years. Uh, and, and I think, you know, that's a testament to your organization and all the partners and, and just, you know, the, obviously the congressmen and, and women who are uh, supporting it. And, and I think that's really interesting that you really hone in or, you know, make a point to say, this is nonpartisan, this is nonpartisan, right? I mean, we're, it's all completely a bipartisan effort to get you know, everyone should be agreeing on conservation and environmental protection. Yeah, and listen, I mean, a lot of times these issues are controversial. I mean, you know, back when Theodore Roosevelt was doing his thing in the early 1900s, you know, there were a lot of people that fought him tooth and nail, and those same interests are still out there. Sure. And they're, well, they yeah. continue to fight us now. It is up to us, you know, to, you know, basically, you know, make the case that you know, what we're arguing for makes more sense than, you know, basically developing everything. Mm -hmm. um, or rolling back all regulations. And, you know, listen, we've lost, you know, some things in this administration, and I've been pretty darn critical of the Trump administration from time to time. But I was, there were times when I was critical of the Obama administration, too. So, I mean, we just have to make sure that, you know, we're staying, you know, you know based on our positions, based on the, you know, science. True, yeah, true to and, yourself, uh, right? And just, you know, you know, this is, you know, we, these issues are going to last a lot longer than whatever administration is next. And it's, you know, coming upon us to, create durable conservation that survives the test of time. The guardians of the conservation, you know, practices and, and, and management of our, our public lands. I love it. I mean, I think you guys are doing a, a great job in this. So, you know, Whit, I mean, this has been a great show. I I'm super uh, excited. You know, I, I joined the TRCP just knowing this was coming up. I was like, I got to learn more about this group. This is fantastic. Well, you got, so you got family, you got friends, right? Come on. Yeah. Oh yeah. No, I mean, yeah. Well, I, I talked to one of my buddies who's a huge uh, hunter and I said, Hey, I'm going to do this podcast. Have you heard of this group? And he was like, Oh man, I've been a member of those guys for like, you know, 10 years. I love them. And so, you know, I just didn't know anything about it. And anyways, I'm excited now that I've got some more information and I can talk and get more involved too. And uh, no, this is good. So you know, hey, thanks for coming on the show today because I think you're shining a light on some topics that a lot of people, you know, maybe not know about um, or understand how it works, right? And and you're kind of, you know, bringing that, you know, con that voice of reason through through the woods and the wilderness here to try to help, you know, solve these problems, maintain some good public lands for everybody, and and uh, you know, you like you said, use the good science and what's common sense, right? Yeah. Well, and just also, I mean, our, our community is really passionate. I mean, your buddy is a hunter. I know he's probably really passionate about hunting and mm -hmm. anglers in the same way. And, uh, you know, it's just that, you know, we need to channel that passion into protecting the system that has worked really well for us and works well for the country. Yeah. And that doesn't happen unless you engage. No, I, I, I would totally agree. So before I let you go, um, I got to bring up a little topic here that I thought was pretty cool. Uh, says here that you grew up hunting and fishing in upstate New York, and you were a member of Team USA in 1997 with the World Fly Fishing Championships. Tell me about that. Well, it's been down here, downhill since then. Certainly, towards my fishing time, but uh, no, that was uh, a lot of fun. I mean, I did. I grew up hunting and fishing. My dad was. Uh, we lived. Our family had a wood lot out in the woods. It was we're two miles back on a dirt road. We had no neighbors. We had a trout stream. So mm -hmm. and I were fly fishing mostly with worms at the end of that fly rod for, you know, since we basically were walking. So yeah, been a passion for a long time. And 
in that particular championship in 97, that was the uh, first and maybe only time that the world championships have been held in the U S mm-hmm. and Trout Unlimited at that time where I was working was the, you know, basically the beneficiary of the profits from the event. Mm-hmm. So they wanted to have a TU member on team USA. And I was that person. So I'd like to say I went through a grueling trials and, you know, <laughs> find the right won. place at the right time. But uh, I was just the right place at the right time. But it was fun, and you know, it was uh, something I, I will enjoy and always remember. Yeah, cherish that one. That's that's yeah. great. Oh, that's awesome. Well, you know, keep doing what you guys are doing, and um, you know, feel free. I'd love to maybe bring you back on or bring someone else back on the show that's part of the TRCP. Talk a little bit about you know some of the new things that are going on that's important to people to know and learn about with with the you know what you guys are uh, proposing to uh, support and the in the realm of the, you know, conservation. I'd love to do that. That'd be great. Hey, listen, we're, we're always here and we got some uh, pretty smart people on staff, a lot smarter than me. They can go far deeper into the issues than I can. So anytime, <laughs> let me know what you want and we'll make it happen. And I really appreciate you having me on and also just highlighting these types of issues on your podcast. No, uh, this is great. I think we'll get some good publicity, publicity out of it. Feel free to share with your, uh, your community and we'll get the message out here uh, probably early next week. Fantastic. I want to thank our guest, Whit Fosberg, for coming on to the show today. If you have questions about the Theodore Roosevelt Conservation Partnership and want to learn more or get involved and become a member, check out their website at www.trcp.org. We'll also put a link to their webpage on my website. To listen to future environmental transformation podcasts, you can check us out on iTunes, Spotify, Google Podcasts, and other podcast networks, or from my website at www.seankgrady.com. You can also follow me on Instagram or the Environmental Transformation Podcast Facebook page. If you enjoyed the podcast, don't forget to subscribe and tell your friends. I would also love to hear feedback from the ET Nation about the episode and any future podcast topics you'd like for me to cover. Thanks for listening, and until next time, make a positive impact in someone's life today.